This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. This class actually is a three-session class. We just finished our last session of the third session of our class that we had our first group. And we have a little more room here in this class. That class was packed. We didn't have an empty chair. But as people come in, I want to be sure we start right on time. Since Jesus is coming on time, we want to start class on time, right? You should be receiving your first worksheet for the class. And I will direct you at certain times to the worksheet that we'll work through together. This class really is on making friends for eternity or reaching a 21st century culture. And I'll tell you about the three classes so you can know what to anticipate and what to expect, and then we'll have prayer and launch right into our class. I am profoundly convinced that Jesus understood the postmodern mind far before the term the postmodern mind was ever coined. And that the message that Christ has given to the Seventh-day Adventist Church is specifically designed to reach a postmodern generation. So what we're going to do in the first class is look at how Jesus developed relationships. We're going to look at some of the research that shows how technology is narrowing relationships and inhibiting the development of those relationships and how you and I can step into that void we're going to look at eight characteristics of the postmodern mind and try to understand how postmodern people think. You know, Ellen White made a statement in the fourth volume of the Testimonies, in order to win souls to Jesus, there must be a study of the human mind. So we want to look at how does this generation think? How is, what processes are different in the thinking process of this generation than they were 25 years ago? And what bridges can we make, and how is the message of Christ, the Bible, and the Adventist Church specifically designed for this generation? So we're going to look at that in the first session. In the second session, which will be tomorrow morning, 8.45, I believe, we will talk about how once you build relationships with people, once you minister to their needs, how then can you build spiritual relationships? It's one thing to make a friend. It's another thing to make a spiritual friend. How can you build Bible-based relationships? How can you share the Word of God? And tomorrow morning, I'm going to share with you the 10 powerful, life-changing principles from God's Word. We're going to look at why God's Word is so incredibly powerful and what happens when you share it to the lives of people. Then on Sabbath afternoon, which is the last of this three-session series, we're going to talk about, and I'm going to share with you something that's incredibly dangerous for me to share with you, but it's probably more dangerous if I don't share it with you. Electricity is dangerous, but it's only dangerous if you get shocked. It's not dangerous if it generates light. I'm going to share with you the principles of the human brain and how the human brain functions as it makes decisions. Once you understand that, you can either use the principles I'm going to share with you to manipulate people, or you can use them in a Christ-centered way 
to really see amazing changes in other lives. We're going to look at the will and how it functions. We're going to look at the counselors of the will and how the power of choice recesses in the brain and how that makes positive choices. I will compare that to how Jesus ministered to people and we'll look at uh, the Bible and what the Bible says about choice and how choice is motivated, how choices are made. We'll look at the levels of decision. It's really important to be here today. How many of you are going to be here today in this class? Boy, this intelligent class. I knew I had a sharp class after lunch. <laughs> the class today and tomorrow are going to prepare you for Sabbath afternoon. So that's, that's where we're going in the class. Let's pray. Does everybody have worksheet number one? Worksheet number one, okay? We'll refer to it as we go. I'll present much more material that's in your worksheet because if all I presented was in your worksheet, then I'd just have you read it and wouldn't have to present it. So, all right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have tailor-made a message of divine truth for this generation. And I pray that as we go through this class that you'd lift our vision, that you'd broaden our understanding, that you'd encourage our hearts. Help us to sense that you have brought us on the scene of this earth's history, not by accident, but by destiny. That we could have been born 100 years ago, 300 years ago, 500 years ago. But in the divine drama of destiny, we were born for this generation, at this moment, to make a difference for the kingdom. And we thank you for that. Now help us take advantage of every opportunity you give us in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, I read the story of a teenager on an Indian reservation out in the northwest of the United States. One day, this Indian teenager left his house really agitated jumped on his bike, began riding down a hill, and as he hit a bump, he went flying over the handlebars of his bike, landed on his wrist, heard this crack, and broke his arm. He immediately was rushed to a small hospital emergency room on the Indian reservation. The doctor treated him, set the arm, put it in a cast, and he said to this young Indian, you're going to be okay. You know, you'll be casted for six weeks or so, and then you begin to use your arm again. But everything should really turn out fine. You should be well. About two days later, the Indian chief of that tribe met the doctor in a general store. And the Indian chief said, I'm really discouraged about, with you, doctor. You really disappointed me. Now, the doctor said, what do you mean I disappointed you? I followed all the protocols. I set that young man's arm, and uh, he's going to be okay. What do you mean you're disappointed? Well, you dealt with a fractured arm. You didn't deal with a fractured heart. You dealt with a broken arm. You didn't deal with a broken spirit, doctor. And you're going to see that young man again. Because you see, two days after you set his arm, I, as the chief of the tribe, went to visit the family. And this is what I discovered. You never knew the reason he broke his arm. You only knew he broke his arm. You didn't know that an abusive father that was drunk came into the home and was beating him up. 
And that's why he jumped on his bike and rode away so fast, and that's why he broke his arm. So, Doc, you dealt with a broken arm. You didn't deal with a broken heart. You dealt with a fractured arm. You didn't deal with a fractured spirit. Doc, you looked at the surface, but I looked at the deeper story. Jesus was a master at looking at the deeper story. You see, Jesus was not a soul-winning technician who merely memorized texts and blurted out texts as they were coming out of a verbal machine gun. Jesus listened sensitively to people. He drew them out with appropriate questions. He met their needs. It is written, the Savior mingled among men as one who desired their good. He showed sympathy toward them. He ministered to their needs. Then he bade them follow me. One of the things that a postmodern generation needs more than anything else is deep, intimate relationships. Deep, intimate relationships. And if we're going to reach men and women for Christ in this generation, it's going to mean getting involved in their lives. It's going to be mean getting down and dirty and getting messy with them. Because life as we know it in the 21st century is a life that's filled with anguish and disappointment and sorrow. It's a life that's filled often with broken homes and disease and sickness and lost jobs. Jesus was a master. Let's look at three case histories in the gospel. But before we do that, go to paragraph number one in your worksheet. I wanted to read it for you. Paragraph number one, worksheet. Jesus listened to people's deeper stories. He healed not only their bodies, but their hearts. The Savior was not a soul-winning technician who memorized the proper formulas, always had the right texts, and could out-argue anyone else. Is it important to know the text? Sure, we're going to focus on that tomorrow. But Jesus cared deeply for people. He was interested in their happiness, their heartaches, their health, their prospects of heaven at last. He longed to see them happy and healthy and holy. He realized that each individual had their unique set of needs and ministered to those needs. We're going to look at three case histories in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and then the man by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus ministered to each one differently. Now, if you want to look at three unlikely prospects, you look at Nicodemus, you look at the woman at the well, and you look at the man by the pool of Bethesda. Who was Nicodemus? Somebody tell me something about Nicodemus. What do you know about Nicodemus? Who was he? He was a Pharisee. What do you know about the Pharisees? What was the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Okay? Pharisees were... Okay, that's one thing. If you were saying liberals and conservatives, who would be more conservative, who would be more liberal? Pharisees were more conservative, Sadducees were more liberal. Both the Pharisees and Sadducees were Jews. Now here, I'll give you the profile of the Pharisees, the profile of the Sadducees. So here's the profile of the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that righteousness came by meticulously following the principles of the law. Now, the problem is, how do you interpret the law? So they have the Mishnah, and you have not only the law, but you have volumes and encyclopedias on interpretations of the law. For example, 
The Bible says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shalt thou do all thy labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. How do you define work? What is work? One group of Pharisees and another group of Pharisees argued over what work was. And one of the big arguments, true, this is true, this is not make-believe, this is not a make-believe illustration. Here's one of the big arguments. If a chicken lays an egg on the Sabbath, is it right or wrong to eat it? One group of Pharisees said, if a ch ch chicken lays an egg on the Sabbath, it's wrong to eat it because the chicken worked. And if you eat the egg, you're participating in his work. Another group of Pharisees said, no, it's not wrong to eat the egg laid by the chicken on a Sabbath because the chicken didn't know he worked and you can't be held guilty for a chicken who worked when he didn't know it. <laughs> so the Pharisees, they have all these, these very minute. Remember the Old Testament says about carrying a burden on the Sabbath day. The reason the Pharisees were so upset with Jesus is not because he healed the man on the Sabbath, but because the guy carried his bed and carrying the bed was a burden. It, the Bible talks about a Sabbath day's journey. How far is a Sabbath day's journey? So the rabbis meet together and they argue over how far a Sabbath day's journey is. And they define a Sabbath day's journey as one-eighth of a mile. But the question is, one-eighth of a mile from where? Well, it's one-eighth of a mile from your house. Well, how do you define where your house is? Your house is where you eat your Sabbath meal. So on Friday, you could take your meal to a friend's house four miles away, go from synagogue to your friend's house, and you're okay, you're within the bounds of the law. So here's the Pharisees. You spend your entire life studying the minute details of the law and trying to keep it. The Sadducees were a little looser than that. And they were Jews who felt that the Pharisees were a little too restrictive on those principles. So you had some of the conflicts there that some places see today. You still have them back there. If I were choosing somebody to witness to, I don't think I would choose a Pharisee of the Pharisees. How would you like to give Bible studies to the leading Baptist minister in Orlando who wants to talk to you about the law of God being done away with and you're under grace and not under law? How would you like to give Bible studies to a leading Jehovah Witness leader who says Christ is not divine? How would you like to give Bible studies to a Catholic priest who believes that the Pope of Rome is supreme? In other words, if I chose a candidate to meet in the evening to give a Bible study to, I don't think I would choose a religious leader who, in my mind, I believed was already opinionated, right? Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 3. John 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. I mean, you'd almost think, if I was with that rabbi, that Nicodemus, he said, you're a teacher come from God, I'd say, praise God, you're right. Jesus totally swept aside, absolutely swept aside any compliment. He noticed three things about Nicodemus. One, he was coming at night. There must be a longing in his heart. He noticed from the question that Nicodemus asked, 
the unspoken request of Nicodemus's heart. Teacher, you're sent from God. There must be something going on in Nicodemus's life. Jesus noticed the look in his eyes. He noticed the inflection of his voice. Jesus, within a few minutes of being with Nicodemus, knew for absolutely sure that Nicodemus did not come to debate religion, but he had a heart longing for something deeper. So what does Jesus do? He goes right after it. Verse 3, Jesus said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of heaven. Then Nicodemus really reveals himself. Verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Jesus said, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God. What was Jesus saying to Nicodemus? Here's what he was saying. Nicodemus, formal religion has not satisfied your heart. Nicodemus, rules and regulations have not satisfied your heart. What you really need, Nicodemus, is a rebirth, a transformation where the grace of Christ sweeps over your life. You need the Holy Spirit to change you from within. Jesus looked beyond what Nicodemus said to his heart. He looked beyond what Nicodemus appeared to be to the needs in his life. If you want to reach a postmodern generation, we will not reach them by trying to out-argue them. We will not reach them by trying to browbeat them with texts. There comes a point in which you share logically and systematically Bible truth. But there's a point way before that where you develop relationships and prejudice is broken down and you meet the heart needs of people. Case history number one, Jesus does not take the bait to go into religious argument. Recently, I was at a meeting and as I was sitting eating, a man came over and stood over me. And as he stood over me, he said to me, my, you travel a lot in the Seventh-day Adventist church, don't you? I said, yes. He was a former Adventist. Then he said to me, you don't believe that stuff you preach, do you? That was like saying, sick them to the dogs. No, <laughs> I restrained myself. I bit my tongue. And I said, that was an interesting comment. What did you mean by that? He said, look, and he went on this diatribe about creation evolution. He said, you look at the geological evidence, and he goes over what he thinks is evidence. Then he, goes, then he goes, you look at this evidence, and he was talking so loud, and a lot of other people were around him. And he said, look at the evidence, not only from geology, but look at the evidence from biology. Look at the evidence. And so, and you know, my mind is working. And every argument he brings up, I think mentally how I'm gonna answer that argument in my brain. But I just let him go on. I said, I'm just going to let this guy go for a while. So he goes on and on and on. And he said, you don't believe that stuff, do you? And I made a few comments. But whatever comment I made, I could see that it made very little impact. As he went on and as other people were listening, wondering what I was going to say, the Lord gave me a, a question to ask him. This intellectual, so-called, 
there were good arguments to every question he raised. There were geological arguments, there were biological arguments, there were arguments from physics, there were arguments from history and culture. But all those arguments would not have reached him. And I said to him, can I just ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, what? I said you once were a Seventh-day Adventist rejoicing in, in Jesus. What has your journey down the path of science done for your personal faith? He dropped his head and he looked up and he said, it's not been good. I said, I have another question. Is there anything that you once believed that you wish you could believe now, that you just cherished and, and you just, just said, I wish I could believe that now? And he said, I wish I could believe there was a heaven. I really would long to believe that my loved ones were in heaven and I could see them again. After the meeting, I went over and pursued a talk with him in a little more private way and discovered that the problem wasn't intellectual at all, that he had gone through some very traumatic experiences in his life and the problem was one of bitterness, anger against God, where he no longer believed in a personal God. You see, you can meet people's surface arguments, but if you don't get down deeper into their lives, you may never know what's really going on in their life. Jesus did not argue with Nicodemus about religious things. He ministered to Nicodemus and pointed out that you have to sweep aside all the formality of religion and come down to the heart relationship with Christ. What do we find in the Gospels? we find Jesus meeting needs. Now let's look at John chapter four. John chapter four. In John chapter three, we have the story of Nicodemus. In John chapter four, we have the story of the Samaritan woman. Now, let's summarize about Samaritans. What, were the what is the difference between the Samaritans and the Jews? Who were the Samaritans? Somebody help me. Who were the Samaritans? Yes intermixed with the Gentiles. Do you remember when that intermixing took place? Uh, was it in Assyria? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really a good observation. I don't want you to miss that because he, he hit the nail on the head. Okay, here's what was going on. First geography lesson. This is Israel, okay? Here is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the province of Judea, okay? Next is what? Samaria. Next is what? Galilee. Okay, so here's Samaria, here's Judea. What happened is the, Assyria, the Syrians attack the land of Palestine. They move into Samaria and they want to repopulate Samaria with, Samaritan, with, 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 with Syrians and there were actually 16 different nations that came in and attacked. So they want to repopulate Samaria. What do they do? They try to take a whole population out. But are you going to be successful taking a whole population out? Certainly not. So thousands of Samaritans were left. So what do they then do? They intermarry with the Samaritans. So the Samaritans are Jews who intermarried with their conquerors. In that process, also, you have Nebuchadnezzar, with Babylon coming south, taking Daniel, you know, 605 BC, and taking the Jews captive. 
the Jews also go captive to Cyrus, in, rather, the, the, the Jews are captive in, in Babylon in the days of Cyrus. The Jews from Judea never intermarry, even in the captivity. They remain pure. When Cyrus overthrows Babylon, the Jews come back to Jerusalem and Judea. And they now are going to build the temple, restore the temple, days of Nehemiah. The Samaritans say, hey, we'll come down and help you. What do the Jews say? Nothing doing. You intermarried. We don't want any defiled hands helping us build the temple. You're not coming down here. So there's this big rivalry. The Samaritans said, all right, we can't help you build the temple at Jerusalem. We'll build our own temple at where? Gerizim. So you have two rival temples, and the rivalry is intense between the Jew and the Samaritan. They don't talk together. There's skirmishes. There's battles. So the scripture says, verse, chapter 4, verse 3, he left. I want to point out something in verse 1 and 2, though. You don't want to miss this. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea. Jesus would not enter into competition with other gospel workers. And rather than enter into competition, Jesus left the area because there was this rivalry, so-called, between some of the disciples of John and some of the disciples of Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm not into the numbers game. There's plenty of territory to work. Let John work here. I mean, you see the graciousness of Christ. Isn't it a tragedy when two ministries or two groups have rivalry? I mean, that's, that's the, the travesty in the gospel of Christ. Okay, verse 3. He left Judea and parted again to Galilee. Verse 4 is the one I want us to look at. But he needed to go through Samaria. Okay, it says Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Did Jesus need to go through Samaria geographically? Remember, here's Palestine. Look at the finger here. So here's Jerusalem. Now you can go to, you can go to Galilee in three ways. You can go over here, go down to Jericho. You can cross the Jordan, go up here. It's a little longer, but it's safer. You can go this way to Tel Aviv, up through Joppa, and you can go here. Or you can go straight through Samaria. It is shorter, but it's far more with tension. So it says he needed to go through Samaria. He didn't need to go through Samaria geographically, but psychologically he did. Jesus wanted to go to the most unlikely prospects, develop relationships with the Samaritans, break down prejudice to bring the gospel to them. So he sits on Jacob's well. It's noon. A Samaritan woman comes. What do you know if a woman comes to draw water at noon? It's hot. What else do you know? What do you know if she comes to draw water at noon? Yeah, she wants to avoid the crowd because the typical time for drawing water is when? Early morning. So Jesus is there. He sees her coming. She sees him. She recognizes he's a Jew. She recognizes from the way he dresses he's a religious teacher. And she's absolutely astounded, wants to draw her water and leave. And Jesus says, would you be so kind to get me something to drink? A Jew never will speak to a Gentile. A religious teacher will never speak to a common person. And a man will never speak to a woman in that culture. Never initiate the conversation. And Jesus said, would you be so kind to get me a drink of water? In that culture, you could not refuse. In that culture, in fact, even the Arabs today have a saying, 
He that refuses water to a weary traveler is under the curse of God. So therefore, Jesus asked this question, and what happens? She said, this man is unusual. This man is unusual. And as Jesus, she gets him a drink, and Jesus says to her, you know, if you had drink the, if you drunk the water that I gave you, you'd never thirst again. Never thirst again. And she begins to read, knowing the look of sorrow in her eyes, knowing the fact that she's come at noon, knowing the reality of the fact of the fact that she's looking downhearted. Jesus reads what's going on in her life. He talks about this inner water, this inner satisfaction. And let your eyes come over here to John chapter 4 and verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him, verse 14, but the water that I give will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. She speaks up immediately, give me this water. He says, go call your husband. And she says, I have five husbands. Jesus says, she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, I know you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not the husband in that you spoke truly. I want to pause there a minute. I think sometimes we're too hard on this woman. We're too hard on this woman, because we don't understand Jewish culture. In Jewish culture at this time, a woman did not have the right, the legal right, to divorce a man. But a man could divorce a woman for almost no reason. So if this woman has had five husbands, what that meant to me is number one, either, now the Bible doesn't tell us whether her first husband died. I don't think he did, but let's assume he divorces her. What does that mean for a Jewish woman in that culture when she's divorced? It means she has to go out and beg. It means she has no further right to remarry. It means she has to pitifully work for a few crumbs on the street. So here is, an, in my mind, an arrogant Jewish abusive man who divorces his wife, who leaves her penniless, and she is preyed upon by other men for survival. That's the picture you get here. And she is absolutely devastated. She is physically devastated. She's emotionally devastated. And she is the outcast of society. The one that nobody wants to speak to or talk to. And Jesus says, I've got something to offer you that will really satisfy you. Something to offer you that will change your life. He breaks down prejudice. And Jesus reveals to this woman that he is Messiah. And for the first time in the Gospels, before he reveals he's Messiah to anybody else, he reveals it to her. And look, in verse 26, verse, verse 25 and 26, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Did you get that before? The first one that Jesus says that he's Messiah to is not Peter in Matthew 16. It's not a Jewish rabbi. 
he tells this woman who's an outcast, who's down and trodden, he says, I'm the Messiah. And what happens? Verse 27. At that point, his disciples come. They marvel. And what does she do? Verse 28. She leaves her water pot by the way and runs into the city. When you realize Christ is the Messiah and he satisfies the deepest need of your heart, you leave your water pots by the way and you run. The things that you once did, you can no longer do. The, the places you once went, you can no longer go. The music you once listened to no longer attracts you that much anymore. Why? Because the living Christ has transformed your life. So you leave the water pot and you run to tell the story. She tells the story. And as she does, they see a new sparkle in her eyes. They see a new joy in her face. They see a new love in her heart. They see that she's been satisfied. And they begin to come. Verse 35. Jesus' disciples now have returned. And he says, don't say there's four months until the harvest. Look, the fields are white for the harvest. The Samaritans come out. They listen to a sermon for Jesus. They're so impressed that they ask Jesus to stay. He stays there for two days and teaches them. He leaves. But later on in the book of Acts, Philip comes back, preaches to them, and that whole city is converted. Why? Because of the testimony of one woman that's been converted by Christ. What do we learn about Nicodemus? What do we learn about the woman at the well? Nicodemus is a man, she's a woman. Nicodemus comes by night, she comes by day. Nicodemus is a wealthy Jew, she is a poor, pitiless outcast. Nicodemus comes looking for Christ, she stumbles across Christ. Nicodemus comes from the well-respected of society, she comes from the off-scarring of society. Nicodemus comes as a religious man, she has no religion. You see, you see this wide contrast, what is it saying? Jesus is saying, you want to reach people? The gospel reaches people of all ethnic backgrounds. The gospel reaches people of every country and every nation. The gospel reaches people of all different thinking processes. Here's what these stories are saying. Show tenderness and kindness to people. Develop relationship with people. Take time to listen to where they're coming from. And as you do, prejudice will be broken down. In John chapter 3, Jesus meets a religious need of a Pharisee. In John chapter 4, he meets an emotional need. You go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're looking there at the fifth chapter of the book of John. Notice there is a third case history that we want to take a look at. John chapter 5, and we're looking at this third case history. And here in this third case history, we're looking at a man by the Pool of Bethesda. He's been there for 38 years. Now, it is the Pool of Bethesda. We need a pause here. When you see Beth in the Bible, it means sign of or house of. Beth, Lehem. Beth is house of. Lehem is bread. So Jesus, the bread of life, was born in Bethlehem, the house of the baker. Beth, Seda. Beth is house of. Seda is fish. So the word Beth, Seda, means a fisherman's village. Jesus called James, John, and Peter to go fishing for men from a fisherman's village. But we're looking at the pool of Beth what? Esda. Esda is mercy. Beth is house of. So Jesus comes to this place where people are physically, wrecked physical specimens. They are shaking with the palsy. They've got disease from head to toe. He finds the worst wretched case of sickness, and he turns that place into a house of mercy because he heals that man. John 3, Jesus meets a spiritual need. He develops a relationship. Nicodemus' life is changed. 
John 4, Jesus meets an emotional need. He shows tenderness and kindness. John 5, Jesus meets a spiritual need. What do we learn about the ministry of Christ? We learn from the ministry of Christ that people are more important than things. We learn from the ministry of Christ that if we're going to reach a postmodern generation, it begins with the developing of positive relationships. It does not end there, but that's where it begins. You cannot win people to Christ unless you develop a relationship with them that gives you the right to share what Christ has done in your life. Now, we are living in a society that is short on relationships. If you go back to the 19th century, the end of the 19th century, there was the Industrial Revolution that changed dramatically America and its manufacturing. We are going through now another revolution in technology. And that technological revolution is changing America. And what's taking place is that emails and tweets and computers and technology are taking the place of human relationships. And I'm going to show you that in some of the studies that are being currently done and show you how I believe that the message of Christ meets the modern mind of the postmodern generation. The average teenage girl, 16 or 17 years old, sends 100 text messages a day. 100 a day. The average guy sends 50 a day. I will not comment on that any further. All right. Jesus and postmodern mind, take out your sheet, please. I got to move by that quick. Take out your sheet, please. Here we go. And then I'm going to read you some stuff that I haven't put in here. You're looking under the postmodern mind. In a 21st century culture of skepticism, positive relationships earn us the right to be heard. Listening to others, caring for others, meeting others' needs, breaks down prejudice. Ours is an impersonal society in which high tech has replaced warm personal touch. Have you ever noticed two people sitting across from one another in a restaurant? And so they go out to eat, they're sitting across from one another, and what are they doing? Sitting on the opposite side of the table. What are they doing? Texting somebody else. So here's, here's two people. They are riding in the car together. One is talking on a cell phone in the back seat. One's talking on a cell phone in the front seat. Hopefully they're not driving. Um, what impact, second paragraph, does technology have on personal relationships and what can it teach us about witnessing and meeting the mind of the 21st century generation? Although the iPhone texting, tweeting, IMS messaging gives us instant access and provides some incredible witnessing opportunities. So we don't deny that. It does depersonalize relationships. Here's a fascinating article. Now, I'm going to read to you from the article. I didn't give it to you purposely. Here it is. Okay. Here's what the article says. On research done on the human brain, what happens to the human brain when kids do 100 text messages a day, 50 text messages a day. Here's what it says. You on your Facebook page, you develop very a lot of likes. Okay? You've got all these friends on a Facebook page, hundreds and hundreds of them. But how many do you know intimately? How many could you sit down with and really share your heart with, see? So we hang out things on the Facebook page. But here's the hunger of this generation. Here's what the article says. During this age of information, relationships are continuously strained. When cell phones or the internet is present, it is as if two people standing next to each other are on totally different planets. Loved ones become disconnected 
from face-to-face -face contact and start to rely on technology to keep the relationship alive. Prior to the technological age, couples were able to successfully communicate in person. Nowadays, people depend on technology so much, it alters their personality. Avid technology users become so secure from the safety behind their laptop that it becomes uncomfortable to converse with others in a real-life setting. It's as if you're a completely different person when switching from a technological conversation to face-to-face. -face. Technology has become a virus that millions of people are infected with. The technological virus spreads through cell phones, laptops, iPods, just as someone with the flu has weakened their immune system. The person with this virus weakens their attention span and their ability to truly communicate. That's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Here's the thing. Do we want to use every technological advance to advance the gospel? Do we? Certainly. I encourage you, text message, I encourage you to use your, your um, email. But here's the thing. It cannot, should not, does not substitute for personal relationships. I was talking to a young preacher, and he was going off into the stratosphere, so excited about all the technological stuff he was doing. And he talked to me for about a half an hour, you know, he just kept going on and on and on. I said, okay, Lord, help me reach this guy. Help me give him a reality check. You know, the older you get, the more you can want to give people reality checks. So you say things that are a little shocking to get them to think. So he went on and on and on. And we're driving in the car. And I just smiled and I said, hey, you know what I was just thinking about? When God wanted to save the world, he didn't send a tweet. He sent his son. <laughs> when God wanted to save the world, he didn't save a tweet. There is nothing that is going to reach a postmodern generation like personal touch. The heart of this generation longs for relationships. It longs for relationships. It longs for somebody to care, somebody to sweep aside the facade, somebody to listen to our needs. Now, there are eight, there are eight philosophical mindset conditions of a postmodern generation. Here's what the research says. I summarized the research for you in eight, in eight statements. Let's look at the eight statements and see. You're looking at the back of your sheet, the postmodern thought summarized. Postmodern thought summarized. Okay, here are the eight major characteristics of postmodern thought. You understand this? You won't understand everything about it, but you've really got the gem. You've got the heart here. Number one, for postmodern people, life is based on relationships. Belonging and a sense of identity with the larger community are far more important than believing a particular creed or doctrine. So for the postmodern people, it is not that you believe, then you belong. It's rather, I want a sense of belonging. I want a sense of community. That's where Christianity is strong. It provides us this sense of relationship. Christ breaks down the barriers. The Adventist church is an international community to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. In Christ, we, there, God is made of one blood all nations. One of the things that thrills me as I travel the world is I go to Africa, and these are my brothers and sisters. I go to Asia, and these are my brothers and sisters. God knew that there would be a heart hunger for community, a heart hunger for relationship, a heart hunger for fellowship. And here in the church, look at our room today. It is a beautiful blend, a mosaic 
of people from different countries and different backgrounds. God has in the Adventist church and in the three angels' message that goes to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Somebody said, Pastor, you get excited about this. I mean, I'm 68 years old. I've been preaching 45 years, and I'm more excited about it today than I was when I started preaching it, you see. You know, somebody said, Pastor, it's like you learned it yesterday and couldn't wait to tell it today. I hope it's that way with you. You see, the three angels' message is designed for the mindset of this generation. It's not some bygone thing of a 19th century ancient mentality. Okay, number two. Now, this is an interesting one. In the postmodern thought, each individual creates their own reality. There are no objective norms. In postmodern thought, feelings of rightness or an inner sense of moral correctness guide all behavior. Postmoderns are looking for models more than methods. They seek application more than theory. So here is where the postmodern thought is. If you want to be a vegan vegetarian, that's okay. If I want to drink my three things of beer, three, three, three buds of beer, you know, if I want to drink my three cans of beer, you know, and, uh, and watch football and eat a pork sandwich, that's okay too. You know, I respect you, you respect me, you know, um, I have my own reality. There are no objective norms. See, that's why in the postmodern mind, if you come to them saying, the Bible says living together outside of marriage is adultery, they don't think that way. Their thinking is there are no norms. As long as I don't hurt anybody else, as long as I don't damage anybody else, if my girlfriend and I agree, that's what they're saying. That's their thinking process, you see. You've got to create your own reality. There are no objective norms. You find within yourself your own reality. Now that's, of course, incredibly dangerous, as I'm going to show in tomorrow's class. But there is something about this postmodern thinking. Postmoderns are looking for models more than methods. In other words, here's what this is saying. If you can show me in your life that Christianity works, and makes you a more patient person filled with peace and joy, I want it. I'm looking for a model. You will not be able to initially prove to me by trying to outwit me intellectually that that model is one that I want. But if you can show me that model, I want to see that model. The Seventh-day Adventist young person today that goes to a secular university or is, on an, or is on an Adventist campus that sensitively listens to the needs of others, that builds relationship with others, and models Christ in their own life will find a fertile opportunity to witness. Like bees come to honey, postmodern people are going to come because they're looking for that model. And I will show you tomorrow too, or maybe in our last text today, later on, just before we finish what God has put in every heart. Okay, number three. The essence of life, this is what postmoderns say, is experience in the context of a larger meta-narrative. Okay. Have you noticed the large number of movie themes and book themes that border on spiritualism? The Harry Potter stories are a good uh, example of that, aren't they? Okay. In the postmodern thinking, there's this 
a meta-narrative is a story behind the story. So a meta-narrative is this large story. So in the postmodern thinking, there's this meta-narrative. There's this large story. There's kind of this cosmic conflict out there someplace, and we're kind of involved in this, in this larger meta-narrative. Do Adventists have any answer to that? Do we understand something called, what was that book you were going to pass out tomorrow? Oh, great, yeah, yeah, thanks. The Great Controversy. We understand that, right? I mean, that's, we have a premium on the Great Controversy story, don't we? I mean, this is the meta-narrative that Luke, God created a perfect world and Lucifer fell from heaven and, and, and Adam and Eve fell and Jesus came and Christ is coming again. We understand that, don't we? See, our message in these times were made for one another because we understand the real meta-narrative, the real story. And you start telling this story. And I've seen, I remember one night I was speaking about Daniel, the second chapter. It was in a small group in a class. I talked about Babylon, Medo-Persia, the, the historicity of the Bible. And, and, and the leader of one of the area rock bands was on his way to a rock concert. And a friend pulled him into my meeting and and they're going to be late for this rock concert where this rock band is supposed to play. And this guy's sitting on the back row, and he doesn't want to leave. And he's the lead singer in the band, and his friends, I can see him, they're pulling him out. And this guy's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Here is a, is a story bigger than my story. Here's a story bigger than anything I've ever been able to see before. Here is this rock smiting the image. Here is justice and righteousness that are going to reign. You see, the message that God has given to this church in the meta-narrative of the conflict between good and evil touches hearts. Four. Now this is a tricky one. For the postmodern mind, ideas of truth, reason, and knowledge give way to signs, experience, and feelings. I want you to think about that. One of the devil's games, does the devil understand the postmodern mind, does he? If the Adventist church is cold and formal and young people simply come to church every Sabbath and get nothing, they will go longing for signs and wonders and another experience. And the devil prepares that because what's going to take place in the future? We're going to see false miracles, aren't we? And false signs and false wonders. And the devil is going to appear as Christ. That is the devil's design for a generation that has drifted from God's word, doesn't have objective reality, wants to base faith on signs and wonders. What is the answer to that? The answer to that is the power of the living Christ that transforms our hearts. When young people come to a church and they see somebody get up and give a testimony that they have been delivered from the bondage of fear, when they've been delivered from alcohol and tobacco, when they see young people coming down the aisle and kneeling at the front, giving their hearts to Jesus, an authentic religious experience, the answer to the signs and wonders is authentic Christian experience. I believe that the devil is going to work in two major ways in the future. One in society and secondly in the Adventist church. We will see strong Pentecostal waves sweep through the Adventist church. We will see that take place. It'll take place in music. It'll take place in a counterfeit tongues experience. Why is that going to happen? Because the devil knows that the postmodern mind wants signs, wonders, and experience. So he will palm off a counterfeit experience that's like candy cotton and not granola. There is a difference between candy cotton and granola. 
You know, you maybe not, you don't know what Kenny Cotton is. I, I understand it. When I was just, a, it's, it's another generation. I'm so sorry. When I was a little boy, my daddy would take me to the beach. I got to explain my illustration. When you got to explain your illustration, you know you're in trouble. When I was a little boy, my daddy would take me to the beach. And at the beach, they'd have this cotton-like stuff, and they'd put all this syrup on top of it. You got that anymore? How do you know about that? I thought you were a health reformer. All right. They put all, I wasn't Adventist when I knew. They, they put all this syrupy, juicy stuff on it. And, oh, I love that stuff. I, I didn't know any better. And I'd pick off that, you know, kind of like cotton, and it would be all can I eat it. It would be sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the belly, right? You'd have some, and an hour later, you'd be hungry, right? Our Hershey bar, now better illustration. Our Hershey bar without the nuts. You eat the nuts, you know, you're halfway there. Our Hershey bar without the nuts. It's going to be sweet in your mouth, but you're going to be hungry later, right? But when you eat Mrs. Finley's granola from the Natural Lifestyle Cookbook, I had to get an ad in, dear. When you eat Mrs. Finley's granola from the Natural Lifestyle Cookbook, you're not going to be hungry for the rest of the day, right? Oh, yeah, maybe till lunch. You can have a counterfeit religious experience that's like a Hershey bar that picks you up and gives you a short lift. But when the problems of life come, it's sweet in the mouth but bitter in the belly. And what the devil is going to do is he's going to palm off a kind of religious experience that is a sentimental superficialism rather than the deepness of God's word. He is going to do that to prepare for the signs and wonders and the impersonation of Christ by the devil. But there will be a generation of youth, many of them sitting here in this room, who will fill their minds with the word of God and the life-transforming power of the Spirit will lead them to manifest the fruits of the Spirit and they will be changed and they will be signs and wonders in this generation in their lives. Okay, here is the fifth. In the postmodern mind, there is a strong sense of justice and fairness. Tolerance, compassion, and equality are the new norm. So in the postmodern mind, you don't evaluate truth based on the objective reality in the Word of God. You, the idea is tolerance and compassion. There's a, there's a sense of justice and mercy. How does the Adventist message meet that? Of all the churches, we understand that the hour of God's judgment has what? The hour of God's judgment is what? God is on trial before the universe. And it, it will be revealed in the cosmic controversy that God is just and that God is fair. And all life, although life is unfair, God is fair. You see, here, the answer to the whole issue of justice and fairness is that although life may treat us unfairly, God will treat us fairly. And that tolerance and compassion, yes, and equality are important. But... Jesus said in Micah 6, verse 8, that you do justly and love mercy. But tolerance is not permissiveness. Neither is tolerance condoning the actions of another that totally violate God's law. So we reach out to others in kindness, compassion, and love. But we recognize that God has eternal moral standards and that sin destroys the essence of who we are as a human being. Sin destroys the essence of the joy that God wants to have for us. Sin destroys that. And the reason God gives us moral standards is because he wants us to live life to the fullest. Okay, look, look at number six. 
There's a move away from materialism, capitalism, and consumerism in postmodern thought as the essence of life's meaning. There's strong interest by postmodern people in health and a simpler life. You'll find particularly postmodern young adults, they say, look, we, life must have more than materialism, capitalism, or consumerism. We want a more simple life, and we want to live a life that's healthful. We were just in Greenwich Village, 13 vegan vegetarian restaurants in Greenwich Village, 13. You see people jogging all the time. They don't have any interest in faith, but what do they have an interest in? An interest in their health. Do Adventists know anything about health? We wrote the book on it. I mean, we know the book, right? So that's why. How do you reach postmodern people? You develop relationships. You show kindness to them. You model Christ in your life. You try to meet their needs. And you minister to them in ways of their receptivity and openness. Seven, for the postmodern person, truth is much more to do with doing it right than getting it right. How you live and relate to others, for them, is far more important than what you think or believe. They must see in your life something different. Now notice number eight. Since life is the product of biological chance for the postmodern, its meaning is found within. The Bible and all other sacred writings provide stories of people seeking for meaning and purpose rather than objective truth. Okay, here's what we're saying there. For the postmodern person, the Bible is not a book that reveals truthful doctrine. At best for them, it's a book that reveals stories about people trying to connect with God. Now, how do you, how do you relate to that to people? How do you relate that to the postmodern mind? Here's how, and this is the bridge for tomorrow's class. When I'm dealing with a postmodern person, I will often try to do something that at least gets them to think. I was, got upgraded to fly first class from New York back to Washington. That doesn't happen often, but when it does, man, I know how to abound and I know how to abase. If the Lord puts me in the last passenger place of the plane, if, the, if my hotel is small, I can abase. I, I abase most of my life, but when I abound, I rejoice in it. So anyway, I was sitting in first class eating my nuts, you know. Um, I wasn't eating between meals because I hadn't eaten lunch that day. Okay, but anyway, I don't want anybody to get on me here. So I'm eating my nuts. I'm just enjoying first class. Young man about 24 comes to sit next to me, and I had my Bible next to me. He said, is that a Bible? I said, yeah, I think it is. So he looks at me, and he said, you read that book? I said, sometimes. I said, you ever read it? He said, I couldn't read that book. He said, I'm an atheist. I said, man, I wish I could be an atheist. If I had as much faith as you, I'd probably be an atheist as well. But my mind is so logical and reasonable, I never could be an atheist. <laughs> but if I had faith, I probably could be. He kind of looked at me and said, well, this guy must come from another planet. <laughs> he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you ever take biology 101? I knew I had to get him thinking. If I couldn't get him thinking, then we lost the battle. I said, yeah, I said, you ever take biology 101? He said, what do you mean? I said, the first law of biology is life begets life. That's biology 101, life begets life. I said, is there any evidence in the natural world? You have to say it with a smile. You don't say it with a smile, they're gonna bop you on top of the head. I said, you know, I said, is there any evidence in the natural? I said, you know, you're really an intelligent young man. You got full, he had told me by this time, because I had talked to him for a while, so I, I knew a lot about him by this time. So I'm summarizing the conversation. So I said, you know, you're really an intelligent young man. You're on full scholarship to one of the best universities in, uh, in uh, the city of New York. But I said, you know, um, do you know of any evidence where any non-living thing produced a living thing. I said, even in DNA change, you get the best scientists, they're trying to make this DNA chain, and, um, but they haven't produced life. 
And even if they did produce life, that would really prove my theory that there is a God because it would take the life didn't naturally involve in its DNA chain. And I guess what you believe, and man, it must be an incredible leap of faith for you. And I want you to tell me about your faith because you believe that there's just enough time that this DNA thing will just kind of all come together and it's no creator, but you don't have any scientific evidence for that. And because I really believe in the scientific evidence, can you help me here? Where, do, do, can, you, can you give me any examples of life that non-living things coming from living things? So we talked and talked. And I said, you know, the other interesting kind of thing is the single law is like produces like, you know, all in the natural world, like is producing like, and even mutations tear down. So we talked and talked and talked. And as we were flying, I knew I wanted to make a bridge into scripture. So I said to him, can I share with you something that's worked for me? Now, what kind of language did I just use? Post, you got it. You were listening. Postmodern language. Can I share with you something that's worked for me? Can I tell you my story? You know, I was brought up in a fairly religious home, but there was something missing in my life. And I had this tremendous fear of death. And when I was about 17, I began to search. My father helped me, and I went in to study the Bible. And I can remember times lying on my bed at night being shaking because I was so afraid of death. But as I studied God's word, I found a peace and a joy. And you know, I'd love to be able to share that with you. Build relationships, meet needs, develop spiritual conversations, give your testimony, and tell your story. You go with a text in your mind. Here's your text, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. Last text, it's 4.15, class ends. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Here is something to keep in mind. Nicodemus had this in his heart. The woman at the well had this in her heart. The man by the pool of Bethesda had this in his heart. The young man that I met on the airplane had it in his heart. Your friends have it in their hearts. The young people you go to university with have it in their hearts. Ecclesiastes 3, you're looking there at verse 11. Verse 10 and 11, here's what it says. I have seen the God-given task, which is the sons of men are to be occupied. That God-given task is to share his love and grace. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time, and he has put eternity in their hearts. The God of the universe places eternity and a longing for eternity in every person's heart. They may not look like they have it there. They may not seem to have it there, but God places eternity in every heart. Go out of here today knowing that as you develop relationships with people, as you meet needs of others around you, as you break down prejudice, that God has placed in their heart the need for eternity, and the Lord will help you to minister to them. Now, tomorrow morning, we're going to share how to make a bridge and how to share the life-giving, powerful Word of God with people that are unsuspecting, how to drop texts in their mind that'll sow as divine seeds to make a difference. Let's pray, let's stand together. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we need not be embarrassed because or feel intimidated by the postmodern mind. That you have developed a message in scripture entrusted sacredly to the Seventh-day Adventist Church to meet people who are longing for deeper relationships, to have the cosmic void in their heart filled. We thank you so much 
to have the opportunity in this generation to reach others with the gospel, with the truth of your word. And we pray that you'd guide us to do that in Christ's name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.